The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So remember that uh, I've been uh, keeping track of some supportive articles for those of you who have been participating in these talks since the summer now, where we're looking at this very well-known discourse from the Buddha, the Pali phrase is the Anapanasati Sutta, which just means the discourse, the teaching on mindfulness of breathing. But it's not just about the breath, it's just the breath is the context for really studying the mind. And so we've been looking at it. The talks are recorded both on our YouTube channel and also on a wonderful website, dharmaseed.org, so you can listen to or watch the videos. And we're now working with the third tetrad, the third set of four instructions. Just as a reminder, the first four really about how the mind, the mind that knows, can be aware of the body and really harmonize with the body. So the effect would be a sense of bodily calm and well-being. Even if your body's sick or injured, there's nothing in the way because that embodied calm arises not because of the specific situation of your body, but because the mind is relating to the body with kindness and intimacy and non-distraction, and that creates a calming effect, or that leads to a calm, an embodied sense of well-being. It's like uh, our life could be a mess, but someone could love us unconditionally and give us a hug, and we would feel good, even though my life is still a mess. You know, I gotta do this, and I don't know what I'm gonna do about that, and this thing's falling apart in my life. But right now, in this moment, I feel good because I'm being loved unconditionally, right? Same thing with how the mind relates to the body. Usually the mind relates to the body in that finger-wagging, judgmental, or I care less about you, I'm not even gonna attend to you, You've never been there for me, why should I show up for you? Right? We have all kinds, I mean, basically any way we might relate to another human being, we probably learn by how we relate to the body. You know, sometimes we're the dominating oppressive force, sometimes we're the neglectful, complacent, you know, everything, codependent. So that's the first training. The second training is really the same arc, but now we're relating, not bringing to mind this whole world of mental activity. And can we harmonize with mental activity? And the trick that the Buddha, Buddha learned and then conveys to us through his teachings is, if you develop, if you keep in mind joy and ease, like that, 
capacity to see that this moment, any moment, is already happening on its own. When my beloved partner and I were talking, she came up, uh, she's taking care of her mom in the East Coast, her 94-year-old mom for this uh, fall. But she drove up to visit me when I was teaching in Massachusetts this last month. And we had this conversation and I shared with her this little insight I had that was really powerful for me. I mean, this is a couple decades ago. And I realized, I don't know if this will work for you, this articulation, but the way I articulated the insight to myself was, well, things are only as bad as they are. Because a lot of the time when I'm relating to life, there's a presumption that things are much worse than they are, right? But they're just what they are. You know, it's like, I'm getting older, I'm 64, but it's like this. It's not worse than this. It is like this. Or my, you know, whatever we want to point to, my partnership with my partner or my situation at work or my relationship with my kids, it's not worse than what it is. It's just what it is. And this is a little bit of that joy, this, this is the second set of four, the joy, ease, willingness to let the mental activity, which is all the meaning making that the mind does, certainly the grosser level of the kind of meaning our thinking mind is fabricating, constructing, right? We're harmonizing with it in the sense of things are just the way they are. This moment that's moving, that's happening right now, the world, you know, the bigger picture, the more specific situation in my own body, heart, mind right here. It's just the way it is. It's already the way that it is. It's kind of like, oh yeah, there's a monster. Well, whatever it is, it's just the way it is. You know, climate crisis, loss of democracy, the oppressive forces, you know, the oppressive corporate forces, the oppressive political forces, the oppressive forces within our own minds that get projected on those around us. Yeah, it's this way. But we're already, like, it's already this way. So this is our relationship to mental activity. We don't need to be spooked by how our mind, the constructions of our mind are scaring us. Because we have the world itself, which is the way it is right now. So we don't have to, you see what our mind is doing, it's like the world is the way it is, and then the mind thinks about the way the world is. It's a little bit like our news cycle. You know, its job, it's to make money basically, but, the way it does that is it gets our attention. And our thinking mind, our mental activity, is really a reflective process. 
our thoughts, like we have this world, this central world, and then we have our thoughts about the central world. But actually, because we already have the central world, we're not, we don't need to be spellbound and pushed around by our thoughts about the central world. One of these uh, teachers that was really impactful, even though I never met Jokobet, back Charlotte Jokobek, who was the um, main teacher at the San Diego Zen Center before she died, uh, maybe 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more now. And she has a couple of really good books, which I highly recommend, even though sort of using more Zen language, Zen Buddhist language, they're really accessible um, with the way we practice here. And she had this really wonderful little simile of, you know, we've got a perfectly fine house, solid, nice windows. And then because we're neurotic, what do we do? We build another perfectly nice house right around our perfectly nice house. So then what happens to our perfectly nice house? It becomes claustrophobic, dank, dark, because there's another house built around this house. And this is this wrong relationship, this unhelpful relationship with mental activity, where we take mental activity to be more than what it is. It's just riffs, and often neurotic riffs, on what's already here and now. Like I have thoughts about who I am, but I don't really need thoughts about who I am, because I'm, who, what, whatever I am, this you know, dance of body and mind, it's already here and now, it's already this way, so why would I be moved or pushed around or frightened by my thought about myself? I'm bad, I'm no good, I've never been good, right? Who I am is already here. It's just this. You see where I'm pointing to with that? And this, is, this has to do with the second tetrad where we're transforming our relationship to mental activity. See, this is a really different than a lot of what we think about meditation is about squashing mental activity. We do a little of that suppression with the first couple instructions where we take up the exclusive meditation object like we did today and we choose to be interested in something ordinary like breathing in and breathing out, so interested in that ordinary process, we're not really directly suppressing thought, but by being interested in this ordinary meditation anchor, we're dropping the addiction to mental activity, because you can't do two things at once. And so to the degree I'm bringing that full unbroken attentiveness to breathing in and breathing out. To that degree, I've dropped the attention to mental activity. It's as if it doesn't exist. I mean, it's there probably in the background because we're not suppressing it or shutting it off, but it's not being attended to and it's as if it doesn't exist because it's not being attended to. But then, when we develop more stability, we, and more of that sense of joy, and especially that resonant ease and contentedness, then there's a kind of immunity 
to mental activity so we can start to include it. Because the ease, the contentment, the not needing things to be different because of the contentedness, then we can recognize, oh yeah, there's mental activity here. It's like bird sounds, or wind through the leaves of the tree, or whatever. I don't have to be for or against the mental activity. Thoughts, perceptions, the feelings that get triggered. It's just stuff coming and going. Like when you're sitting in a public space, it's really nice actually, this is a good place to practice, you know, go to the Mall of America or wherever, you could be in a public space, airport, and just sit, and if it feels a little weird, just like have a book in front of you, or your screen, so it looks like you're doing something. But just be aware of the ambient sound. And it's almost like you're relating to it as if it's a foreign language you don't understand. You know, it's just that activity. Just like your own thoughts. Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers said, you can just pretend like someone left a radio on when you're meditating and there's mental activity. You know, maybe it's NPR, but maybe it's, you know, the, the rock station or progressive rock or <laughs> whatever it is. K-Jazz. You know, it's just what it is. And uh, then we, we discover something really important, which is the mind doesn't have to have a problem with mental activity. It's almost like we begin to see right through it. Normally, when there's a thought, when any, whenever there's a mental activity, we identify with that. It's like, that's me, of course. But it's almost like we could start looking right through it, and that sets up this third tetrad that we've started to look more specifically at, which is the space, not the activity of the mind, but the space of the mind. So right now, what is the space of the mind? This, this is the answer. <laughs> this is the space of the mind. The present moment, right now, this is fundamentally the space of the mind, but we have to look through the objects that are being known. We have to practice not being confused by the visual objects that are happening and the auditory experiences that are happening right now and the tactile experience that's happening right now. It's like it's happening and we don't have to be afraid of the objects of experience, but if, you, if we learn the art of not being confused by the objects of experience, will notice the space. This is what in Buddhism we mean by mind or heart. Right? It's something very real, it's not philosophical. It's this, this is mind. We even say sometimes, this is a moment of mind. Right? This is a moment of mind. The trouble is, mostly we're fixated on a particular object that's coming and going, that's arising. But we don't have to be. 
So the work of the first two tetrads, harmonizing with bodily activity, harmonizing with mental activity, is just to create the supporting conditions to awaken, to realize, oh yeah, there is this space of the mind. So that's the ninth instruction, as you might remember, those of you in, in the document. And by the way, for those of you in the room, you can access this Google Doc with all the articles that will support the study. Just go to our online calendar, look for the Sunday morning you know, program, and then same in that description of the program, you'll see the link to this Google Doc. And uh, I always put the more relevant articles for today's talk at the top, but there's probably close to 20 articles and documents that have included there that you can use for background information. So when you get to the ninth instruction, the Buddha says, one trains oneself, breathing in, experiencing the mind. Not the activity, but the mind itself. The space of the mind, you could say, or you could say the space of the knowing mind. And you can even say the space of the present moment. So we're breathing in, and that's what we're keeping in mind. Through the duration of breathing in, getting interested in the space here and now. Breathing out, interested, keeping in mind the space of the present moment. In the next three or four, it's really we're hitting the same note. We're knowing, experiencing the space of the mind. We're gladdening it. We're appreciating it. We're realizing it's relevant. It's beautiful. I mean, literally beautiful. It moves us. How could I have missed this? It's like uh, Bhante Gunaratana, who's often called Bhante G, the letter G. He's a Sri Lankan monk who came to the States a long time ago. He's been a monk since he was like 13 years old. Some in uh, Asian countries, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Burma. Uh, sometimes the monks become novices when they're really young. It's kind of, in some ways, can be almost like an orphanage for families that can't afford to feed all their kids or families that are really devout Buddhists. They'll send one of their sons and sometimes daughters to be ordained. So anyway, he ordained early, came to the States in his uh, younger adult years and has been, uh, he was a Buddhist chaplain at American University, but he's been a really important teacher here in the West for a long, long time. He's in his early 90s now, still teaching. He has a center in West Virginia. But uh, he has a book, Eight Mindful Steps for Happiness, where he's talking about the Buddhist Eightfold Path. And he tells a story there about, it's kind of like a Buddhist proverb. And it asks the question, this proverb, like, if you had a really important treasure and you wanted to hide it somewhere where no one would ever find it, where would you hide it? And the thing is, you'd hide it in a place where nobody would think to look. And Bhante Ji, Bhante Gunaratana, he uses this little proverb to talk about this third tetra, the space of the mind is the place we never look. It's so, uh, it's so sort of fundamental to our experience as a human being, just the space of the present moment, 
that it never occurs to the knowing mind to know, to intuit, to sense the space of the present moment. In the same way, just on this visual, on a visual level, we rarely, unless you're an artist, like a, a visual artist, you rarely are sensitive to the visual space. We're sensitive to the objects that we're seeing, but not so much to the space in which all those visual objects are being seen, right? In uh, artistic terms, it's called negative space. Like, and in, in especially in some of the Asian um, forms of drawing and painting, it's a central concept to understand the negative space of the, you know, the rice paper. That's as important as the ink on the paper is the empty space of the canvas or the rice paper, whatever they use. So it's a little bit like this in this third tetrad, this first instruction of experiencing the space and we get there, you know, um, Ajahn Chah, a well-known Thai meditation teacher, Buddhist monk, you know, in one of his teachings, he talks about sati, which we usually translate as awareness, mindful awareness, which is a recollectedness. So mindfulness, mindful awareness means we're recollecting, we're remembering that this is being known. And when we keep remembering that this is being known, then we have sampajana, which is another really important word in the Buddhist teachings. And it usually gets translated as something like clear comprehension, clearly comprehending, clear awareness, self-awareness even. And when we have mindful awareness where we're recollecting or remembering, oh yeah, this is being known, and we're doing that with some continuity, then the mind wisdom can clearly comprehend. It's almost like the continuity of mindfulness, of awareness, allows the mind to connect the dots. Oh, this is what's happening. This is what's unfolding. We start to see the changing, like that life is always in motion. There is nothing, there's no thing here, right? We think there are things, like you're a thing, I'm a thing, this building's a thing, Minneapolis is a thing, Sunday's a thing, you know. 11.29 is a thing. It said 12.29. I thought this clock changed automatically, but I guess not. Right? So we, we think everything's a thing, but nothing's a thing. It's a changing process. And when we get the continuity of mindful awareness, this is one of the things that clear comprehension comprehends. Oh my God, everything's changing. You know, the joy that we experience, that we keep in mind in the second tetrad, that's really just a natural sense of how alive everything is with change. That nothing is actually fixed. 
You can get this sometimes when you're playing sports or whatever you're playing, making love or doing whatever you really love to do that you're so absorbed in the activity that your mind isn't fixing that activity into a thing. There's just the activity. And what do we call that in kind of common English? Being in the flow, right? Being in the flow of things. It's a natural experience when we're not addicted to our thought about what I'm doing or what's happening. There's just activity. And it's, you know, there's that bubbly, buoyant quality when there's just activity. That playful dance, fluid, flowing dance of life. And you can do that with really conceptual things. You know, writers will talk about it. The words are just flowing, right? Sometimes, <laughs> once in a long while maybe. So whatever, you know, whether your, your joy is cooking or knitting or hanging out with your kids or whatever it might be. When I was younger and I did a lot of backpacking and stuff like that, uh, I used to love, I, I used to live in DC and we, we drive to West Virginia and, and Western Virginia where there are some nice wooded areas, hilly areas, and you could find these stream beds you could just run down, you know, that were just right. But you had to be so attentive that you landed on the next boulder that you couldn't think, like, how dangerous this is or how cool that I'm doing this. You couldn't have any of those thoughts because all of your attention had to be in the activity. Right? So this is just an example. And we did it, maybe we understood a little bit, because I was beginning to practice at that time, but mostly we knew that it made us happy to do stupid stuff like that. <laughs> or whatever you know, people do. You know, there must be a reason people do extreme sports. Because they get out of their heads. And the fixedness of their, but we don't need to do crazy stuff. We just need to understand how it is that joy can arise. We're, we're developing that interest. And the more we see that changing nature, the impersonal nature, that whenever the mind solidifies experience into something, it's stressful. As soon as I make Ari a thing, the experience of interacting with that person isn't as interesting, right? Because I'm interacting with my idea of somebody I know, not with the person. Because the person isn't a thing. I mean, this is how marriages fall apart and relationships fall apart, is we're stuck making each other a thing. The idea I have of you, your idea you have of me. No wonder we don't like to be around each other. <laughs> because there's, no, there's nothing alive in that. So the more we can move in this direction of seeing how alive everything, then we can start looking right through all this movement, all this activity.
So we don't stay in the joy and the aliveness, we go further. We look right through it. That's why it's important to go from the, the bright aliveness of the joy to the more resonant ease. Like, whatever this is, it can be trusted. It knows what it's doing. Life knows what it's doing. It doesn't mean it's perfect, and it doesn't mean it doesn't come with real suffering. It just means I don't have to be in charge. And that's a relief. That triggers that ease. So there's a lot of activity. There's this deepening sense I don't have to own it or be in charge. And then we can start to see what else is here. Oh, there's this mystery. And let's just, for the sake of being able to talk about it, give it a name. We'll call it the space of the present moment, the space of the mind, the space of here and now. Can I abide? Can I rest? Can I keep it in mind? Can I appreciate it? Can I really attune to the stillness and the silence and the emptiness of it? That's the concentrating it. We're purifying it. It's like what they do with metals. I don't really know what they do with metals, but you know, when you have, when they're um, doing whatever they do and they want to get pure gold, but there are other metals mixed in with the gold, there's a process of distilling, refining, purifying, right? And we're doing that with the mind too, because in this recognizing or experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind, concentrating the mind, releasing the mind. Those are the four things the Buddha's asking. Experiencing, gladdening, concentrating, or you could say refining, purifying, and liberating or releasing the mind. That's the third set of four instructions. So we're keeping this in mind, and in, we're keeping it in mind with a particular angle, which is seeing what's here in the space of the present moment that's truly beautiful and releasing. It's releasing everything that has a semblance of weight and stickiness, heaviness. All of that can go. Because, like just using the word awareness, awareness isn't contaminated by what we're aware of. I can be aware of anger, but the awareness isn't touched, isn't contaminated by the anger. So it's like a mirror isn't contaminated by what it reflects. There's something about the nature of the mind that is essentially pure. And we want to keep that purity in mind until the mind realizes the mind without any semblance of self-centeredness. And that's a discovery. It's an important discovery. We call it an insight, a spiritual insight, where the mind realizes, oh, suddenly, surprisingly, this is this, but there's no Self. There's no location, there's no weight. It's like space, 
right? But space is undifferentiated. And this is this realization that, oh, essentially, this is what is. And it, it really affects our habits of projecting a self in the middle of everything, a self-centered orientation. It really begins to shift that every time this insight deepens a little bit. And it's another way, a completely different way then, of be, being in relationship, having responsibilities, wanting to make the world a better place, right? All that activity, this all continues, but now there's a real shift in the habit of projecting that there's a me who wants to be in relationship with this other person, a me who wants the kids to grow up to be happy, a me who wants the world to be a better place. The activity remains, but the heaviness and the stickiness begins to fall away. And we feel lighter, enlightened, a little bit more enlightened, a little bit more awakened. We're awakening to the truth, which has always been here, but the mind has been oblivious because it's been caught in, in its thingness, right? My life, like the mind generates these concepts, my life sucks, or I have a privileged life. So it doesn't matter what the story is, but there's a stickiness. We get confused by the constructions of our own mind. My teacher Joseph Goldstein says it's like kids dressing up as pirates and other things and then getting frightened by their costumes. You know, look at, oh my God, a pirate. And it's the same thing, you know, we generate some concept and then we get frightened by it. As opposed to what is the activity of life minus these fixations. Life is still life. Julia, would you check and see if the kids are going to come in and sing today? Madeline was just peeking in. Isn't it nice to have the kids back in the building? <laughs> so we'll come back to this. Are they ready? Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, they can come in. We'll come back to this topic next Sunday, this third tetrad. So you can track down some of the studies or articles rather, to get some background. And we'll let the children come, and I don't know if people have met Madeline. And so, uh, let's see if we can make the camera so that the people on Zoom can see the children too. Madeline, where are you gonna have the kids sit? Right in front? I think it's right with you. Yeah, that sounds good. So people online, we have a tradition that got interrupted by the pandemic of the children coming in and singing a song. And then when we're done with that, I'll turn you over to Lucy, who will divide the group into small groups for any of you who want to stay. Of course, it's optional in groups of three or four, just to share with each other any of your own perspectives and reflections on what I talked about today. So you get to see the back of the kids and our wonderful volunteers and teachers, Madeline and Joe here. Great. So what are you going to sing for us? We're going to sing our class. 
for coming in and singing with us. That was beautiful. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.